down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Hello, friends. It's me, once again, Jacob Lindsay, for Tasting Anarchy, joined by... Wilson Joseph. Those, those opens are always a little bit difficult. I don't ever really know what to say. Uh, <laughs> so I just kind of try to make something up. Yeah. Um, so we got a pretty pretty exciting show. I think, I think, you know, almost 25 episodes in or 23 episodes in, we've, we've finally hit our stride, and I think we're kind of starting to get how to make a show flow. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we're located in different areas and kind of have different things going on that like I got, I can prepare my notes early on. Uh, we can do, you know, different things and, um, it kind of, it just starts flowing. So this week, um, we're not doing the same wine. Uh, but I hear Mason that you are sipping on something related to what we tried last week. You want to share kind of your initial thoughts on that? Uh, no. Oh, you don't. I will be telling you all about it later. Okay. In the next episode. Oh, okay. Uh, this one, um, you know, if you've been following the show, you, you can kind of guess where it's going. All right. Uh, but I want everybody to um, get it fresh because, you know, we, we had that bit of a microphone snafu yeah. <laughs> beginning. I, I think it's clouded a little bit of my judgment of the wine, so I don't want to say anything. Right. Okay. Uh, a minute or two with it, or, well, a couple of time go-arounds with it right okay that makes sense um so we'll go ahead and just start with mine then uh kind of continuing what i've been doing for the last couple weeks except for last week when we uh shared a, a cabernet um this week i went with a another georgian that we got at the russian store uh the famous richardson russian store uh it's uh the company is called um, Marani. Uh, it's so I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly because it's Georgian, not English. But Marani, the wine's name is Kakheti, K-A-K-H-E-T-I. Uh, this is a, and we've done one of these wines once before, and I cannot for the life of me pronounce it. Um, Rak Raktistelli, Raktistelli. So. That's if you guys want to look it up and not hear my awful pronunciation of it. It is R K A T S I T E L I. <laughs> so it's a difficult one to pronounce, but this is a white varietal grape that is from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been growing it in Georgia since at least 3000 BC. Uh, very popular grape variety in Eastern Europe. During this time of the Soviet Union, it made up uh, almost 19% of total wine production in the Soviet Union. Wow. Um, so it, it was one of their more popular white varietals. Uh, and it's a pretty hardy varietal. They do grow it here in the United States now, uh, particularly in the Finger Lakes region of New York, uh, which seems to be a lot of the native um, Georgian varietals are, mm-hmm. are also grown in the Finger Lakes, which since I've been seeing that, it kind of leads me to believe that the Finger Lakes is a similar climate to Georgia, um, or they just they just kind of do well there. Um, I, I already had a sip of it, and yeah. uh, honestly, I'm not super impressed with this this particular one. Um, mm-hmm. It is it, it's pretty sour. It's a sour. Um, it's a dry white wine, so it's not sweet like um, like actually we really haven't tried many of the sweet um, white wines, but we've tried. 
uh, you know, the Pinot Gris and, uh, I think I had a Sauvignon Blanc on one episode and, um, this one, I would say it is, it could be very refreshing. It was very hot out. Uh, and it, it's an interesting wine, but it's not really, there's just not a lot to it. It's just kind of a, a, a tart flavor, very light bodied. Um, just not just, I don't really have anything else specific to say about it. The wine itself, the history wise is very interesting, but mm-hmm. just tasting the wine, not really for me. Uh, okay. Now, I don't feel like I've been gypped or anything like that. It's 13% alcohol by volume, uh, 10.99 a bottle at the, at the Russian store. Um, but it's, and it's pretty good. And I'll go ahead and read the description just cause it's, it's sort of interesting. Do you have a year on it? Uh, this is 2016. Okay. Um, so this is a description. So uh, grapes are handpicked at the optimum of their maturity. And I'll kind of uh, put a, you know, editorial or whatever in there on this. Um, this varietal is very, very tart. So they do tend to pick them very late in the season. So usually the end of October is when, I'm not going to say the name again, but this type, this varietal, are, I'm going to call it RK for us, uh, that this varietal is picked in like late October because they, it does tend to be tart. So they're trying to get the most sugars out of it by picking a very, very ripe grape. Um, so anyways, back to the description, uh, softly destemmed grapes are gently crushed and fermented on the skins for 10 to 14 days in accordance with traditions of the local cock, cock head, 10, nani, tatain. I don't know how to say that. K, K A K H E T I A N. The cockatane winemaking, uh, in steel or stainless steel tanks. After oh. the fermentation is over, the wine is racked for another tank for, and it says farther fermentation, but this I think is a translation error. So it's further, I believe further, uh, yeah, fermentation. Yeah. Um, Wine could be matured for several years on the bottle accordingly. Um, so they're just saying, I guess it could be older if you want it to be. Uh, when you go and read about this grape varietal and how they did it traditionally in Georgia, it was traditionally done in clay, um, in a, in a clay cask. Uh, and so they, they do say that this is in the traditional style of that region, which is, I, th- I believe, Kaketi. Um, and like, I think the K A K H, the K and the H, I think make a specific sound group hmm. separate from the, that's different than the K. Okay. Yeah. So like there wasn't actually really any tasting notes on it. Um, mm-hmm. but for what I, there is something to it. Like there is a, and I, I don't know if the fact that it's done on the on the skin is kind of clouding this a little, little bit, but there, it does seem to be quite a bit more tannic than most whites. Uh-huh. So there is kind of a mouth stickiness to it that you would normally associate with, you know, maybe a cab um, or you know a Cabernet Franc or a Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, so and it and it is sweeter a little bit, but it's it's definitely just kind of tart. And then that's kind of it. It does have a texture, um, but then it's just a tartness. So. You know, I don't particularly recommend this unless you are a huge fan of whites and you just kind of want to try a different white. Um, as listeners who have been listening for a while know, you know, I'm more of a red guy, uh, particularly Cabernet Sauvignon or Cabernet Francs, the, the more tannic, more uh, acidic, kind of aggressive red wines are is, yeah. is sort of my wheelhouse. This one, I, I do appreciate it. It And, you know, each sip I have of it, I'm kind of like, okay, well, it's interesting. The texture is very interesting, mm-hmm. but not really any flavors. Yeah, that so that sounds like something I would really like. Mm. So I think you might uh, like it if if there's a Russian store nearby that sells wine. Actually, there oh. is uh, Skazka 
um, over by our old work. Uh, I think they sell a little bit of wine. Uh, I don't know if they would have this, but no, I'll it, just have to wait till I come out to. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, we'll pick that up. Or you come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll break the secret then. Okay. This is too close to what I'm already drinking. Mm. So I've got the Winking Owl Pinot Grigio, two ninety nine. So you know, not expecting a lot. And you, we found out that the Winking Owl is um, done by the uh, Barefoot Brewery or not Brewery Winery. Okay. You you mentioned this last week. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, yeah, that whole that whole family or whatever does it's like the largest exporter in California, and yeah. they do tons of stuff that you wouldn't have even thought. Yeah. So like Pinot Grigio is, you know, it can be sweet. Um, it generally isn't super sweet unless it's like not acidic at all. Right. This is like sweet and acidic, hmm. and it's got a citrus note. And the more I have of it, the more I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I'm seeing more of the of this but remember that the new zealand the new leaf the yeah, silver leaf yeah the one that we were just kind of like okay well it's you know it's grigio yeah <laughs> this is like that mm-hmm. but the flavor profile is a little different so it isn't you're not going to get the same grassiness that right the the new zealand one had this is definitely like mass produced okay like it's definitely balanced um and one of the things that i kind of have a problem with, with barefoot is a lot of their stuff is sweeter than i think it needs to be Mm-hmm. And I think that's more for palate, making wine more palatable to people. Okay. Which, you know, they're like one of the largest wine producers in the country. Um, they clearly know what they're doing um, to sell their product. Right. And every barefoot I've had, um, just saying, not the winking owl ones, but the, all the barefoot labeled ones I've had, I've not been disappointed with, except for the Chardonnay, because I don't like Chardonnay. Okay. Like, I just didn't care for it. I'm like, I, I just wouldn't drink this again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, everything else, like, their sparklings and things like that. Because we'll make mimosas out of them on the weekend sometime. Really good. So this is one of those ones where it's like, I, I wish you were, I wish we had arranged to do this one, too. Because I know there are flavor notes that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. But because I'm not always the most um, descriptive language in my speaking, um, I don't have always have a lot of good descriptive words and you would pick up on those notes and express them better than I could. Right. So, but it, it has a citrus flavor. I mean, so like it's a semi, semi dry, light body, subtle flavors of citrus, stone fruits, pear, and a hint of honeysuckle. Um, I know the honeysuckle flavor very well. It's one of the few like super sweet flavors I really enjoy. Um, so, you know, it's not, it doesn't have a big honeysuckle, definitely a lot of citrus. I don't get any stone fruit really. Um, but pear I could see, but mm-hmm. citrus mainly. But you know, it's it's one of those ones where, like I said, we had that microphone issue that yeah. we think we worked out partially, or at least a strategy for now until we get a little bit other things going. Right. Um, but I was really kind of like, this is trash when I first started. <laughs> and, okay. And I, think, I think it's kind of like sours. You know, like the first time you have a real sour beer. Right. Yeah. It's like, what did I just like? Who eats lemon heads or warheads? You know right, that right, sort of thing. Yeah. Like this is stupid. Like, yeah. Why would I do this to myself? And then you're like, wait, no, there's something here. Right. And I, I don't know if that's because we're becoming more wine snobby. Uh huh. Where we're trying to pull out flavors and profiles and maybe not imagining things, but seeing a more depth of flavor than maybe is necessarily there. Mm-hmm. And we're just trying to associate stuff and be like, Oh, we're, you know, we've had a hundred wines. We should know what we're talking about. And, right. You know, and then you're like, Oh wait, no, this is trash. Right. <laughs> then, you know, like you give it to like a someone and they're like, no, this is garbage. 
Well, I mean, this thing is, it is, it is a $3 bottle of wine. Um, so, you know, what, what can you really expect from it? Although the cab that we had was, you know, palatable. It was fine. It wasn't, oh, yeah. it wasn't amazing, but it was, you know, just, it was all right. Yeah. Um, so like, I guess kind of like I've got another winking owl that I'm saving for when you and I can do one together. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, th- I think I thought it was, I think I thought, I, I thought it was, um, what was the one that your mom brought? Was it a Zivendel? The Shiraz. Or Shiraz. Okay. So I think that this one is a, is a, it's not a Shiraz. I think this is either a Merlot or a Zinfandel. Um, mm. I'll have to, I'll have to look at it, um, and yeah. find out. And then you can get a bottle of it too, and we can plan an episode to do it together. But what, like I, what I was saying is, uh, I kind of expect at this point it to be not great or to be like serviceable. So it's like, okay, well, this is actually for two, for three bucks, not bad. Yeah. And that's, um, that's what I'll say. So this is serviceable. Um, I think for a cooking, white like if you needed the acidity punch of a like a red but you didn't want the the red flavor Mm -hmm. like you say you were doing like clams or something like that where maybe the red it just wouldn't go well with whatever else you had i think this would go pretty well like putting that together for you right um but you know it's one of those ones where (laughs) so like not to speak about necessarily URI's financial situation. Right. I don't need to buy three dollar wine. Well to, that's true, but <laughs> like if I'm gonna enjoy a bottle of wine, I can spend fifteen bucks or so. Yeah. And, and get a bottle of wine and have you know a nice evening. Um I don't need to I I don't need to drink wine often where I need to, the volume discount that three dollars is gonna get me. Right. And I don't have so little money that I have to be like, Oh, I'm going to have a good evening. I, I, you know, and I want to spice it up with a bottle of wine. I'm going to spend three bucks. Right. At the Syrah, at least flavor wise. And I, I don't know a Syrah, like that's one of those bottles of wine where I was like, no, I would go out of my way to buy this. This right. is one of those ones where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not angry. I bought it. Mm-hmm. And Espe- especially since it's three bucks. Like how can you get mad about that? Well, one day we'll, we'll, we'll do an episode. I think one of these days. Um, so this is literally something I just came up with. I think we should have kind of a more jokey episode set. Right. Where yeah, we yeah. typically buy bad wine. So like there's the wine called Thunderbird. Oh yeah. Absolute trash. Huh. But like that, I think you would be angry you bought it. Okay. Like it's bad. Oh, <laughs> at least so, who drinks it then? Somebody must like it or, or well, at least just want to get trashed. Yeah. I, I, that's the thing is like, so I feel bad disparaging the Thunderbird people who manufacture the product because clearly, you know, they, they're servicing a market set. Right. Um, but like a few times I've had it when we were like, let's have a Thunderbird party. We were just like, no, this was a, <laughs> it's like the PBR. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, this was a bad choice. Right. And, and this isn't a bad choice, but you know, it's like anything with wine where if in, like, I don't want to come off, like I said, I, I, and this sounds like I'm trying to be PC or something like that. And I don't think so. I'm trying to be PC in this. There's a certain point where you have to know your price point. Yeah. And if your price point is $3 and you want a bottle of wine, like Winking Owl has got something for you. Unless you just hate wine, then right. what the heck are you doing? But, you know, maybe don't go with the Grigio. Try the Syrah. Like, if you if you don't like a red, try it. Like, I... You know, I'm not the biggest red guy, and I think it's pretty good. We'll get it at another point, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll do, you know, I think every couple episodes out, we can try to get the same wine and, you know, yeah. look at different costs and things like that and compare right. the advantages of Texas to the disadvantages of Virginia. Right. <laughs> so. Well, that's the thing. is like The wine here is slightly cheaper mm-hmm. um, for the most part, although I was looking at the Pina, which 
Um, at this point, when when this is posted, it's probably two or three episodes. Well, about three episodes back, we did the Pinot, which is a hundred dollar bottle of wine, and that's just under hundred. Yeah. yeah, just under a hundred, and that that uh right now on on um total wine for texas that's that it was well, a year more recent than the one we tried mm-hmm. um it's a hundred dollars it's 99.99 mm. so i don't know if that's a tax issue or if it's just the price of it here for some reason is different it's a limited supply and um and it's like in big bold redders redders big bold letters limited supply oh wow so it's so i don't know if that if there's something special about it this year, I mean, there, there has been a ton of fires in California and I believe that that was from Sonoma. And so I'm wondering if, if maybe there's either the, the vineyards were affected by the fires or, um, transportation was affected, you know, or, or possibly just the whole, the process was affected this year. They had to leave or something like that and turned out, you know, maybe their vineyard wasn't damaged, but they had to leave. So they just didn't get as large of a supply as they expected or maybe climate, you know, something like that. Um, but speaking of California, mm-hmm. this will be a good a good segue. And also speaking real of, quick. yeah, go real ahead. Um, with the Pina, because I'm on Total Wine site, real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember if we had the De Palma one? It was. Uh, I, the- I, I can look. It was. It started. It was. Uh, hang on. I, I'll remember it. It was. It was. Um, I'll, I'll remember it. Hold on. Is it the Buckeye? Buckeye. That's it. Yeah, Buckeye. Okay. So looking at Total Wine's website. Their Cabernet Firehouse, the Cabernet uh, Ames, well, they're all cabs. Yeah. So Firehouse Oakville, uh, D'Almo, um, there is one cab that isn't, but the Uteville and the Buckeye, they're all 99 99 mm. So, and then right. Total Wine knows I'm in Virginia. So, oh, okay. And these are all limited quantity, and they're 2013s, except for one of them is a 2012. So, <laughs> I know their production wasn't hampered okay. by fires from last year. Or this year, because there was the big fire set last yeah. year. Well, there's a fire going on right now somewhere, somewhere in that Correct. area. Correct. But what I'm saying is their production wasn't damaged. Like the the growing of the grapes, okay, weren't damaged by last year's fire. Now that doesn't mean 2013 didn't have a fire, right? But before, when we looked at their other their other varietals or other vineyards, because yeah. they're all cabs, mm-hmm. um, they were all they were they had different prices. Okay, so they're all kind of. Except for one, which is fifty nine ninety nine, which I don't know to try. <laughs> well, I mean, it could it could totally just be due to to market demand. So maybe you know people listened to our episode and they were like, "Yeah, that's the one I want." Although they haven't listened to it at this point because it doesn't come out until next week. Quite so. possibly, it could be that um, maybe Total Wine has some sort of issue with the vendor. Yeah, that could be. Total Wine doesn't have a huge quantity of them, or yeah. maybe uh, who knows. Well, yeah, but on to California. Yeah. So speaking of California, and speaking of um, being able to buy things at your price point, um, I thought there was two articles I came across. Well, one article and one video I came across this week that were about the California California High Speed Railroad, <laughs> our favorite thing. But one of the articles was about the Texas High High Speed Railroad between. Whoa. That they're trying to get built between Houston and Dallas, mm-hmm. and it, it never fails to amaze me. The like, I don't want to sound disparaging towards Americans because I really think like America is exceptional in in a lot of ways. Um, why Americans do you care so much about rail? And I and I don't just ask that question to other Americans. I ask that question to myself because I like rail for some reason as well. We, we both do. 
Yeah. I, and it doesn't make any sense at all that we would like it so much because it's never profitable. It's, it's slow, but kind of to go into real quick, the, the California one. So this article, uh, about the Texas versus California was kind of comparing and contrasting the two, um, the two systems. So California made the high speed rail authority and the high speed rail authority is basically in charge of doing it. Um, <laughs> the, in Texas, it's a private company that's doing it, mm-hmm. but, just like with California, they're doing it with eminent domain, which is right. I, I'm opposed to. And I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I think I can speak for you and say that you're also opposed to that as well. Um, I cannot think of a situation where I believe in eminent domain. Yeah. So they, they want to do this too, but kind of one of the things that like for any Texans that are listening that support a high speed rail system, let me just kind of like, I know that California is a different state, but this sort of thing happens when government gets involved all the time. So the, the California High Speed Railroad is 100% over budget from its 2008 budget outline, which was already almost 100% over budget from the original estimate. <laughs> they, you know, they've received, uh, almost $7 billion in federal funding for it, and they've, and they are at an estimated $77 billion for the high speed rail. Because they decided to make the rail dual use, it can't go 250 miles an hour like it was promised in 2008. It can only go 100 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. So like all of, and going at 100 miles per hour and because of the way that the government had like different municipalities have lobbied for the rail to go through their municipality, it is now going to take roughly the same amount of time to go on the high speed rail as it would just on the regular Amtrak. So, so it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so a lot of the guys that were pushing for this, a lot of the politicians and like environmental people who were pushing for this back in 2008 and, and before are now going, no, this is a lie. Uh, they're just trying to sink more money into it. So it would cost more money not to do it than to do it. Like that, they like, they're trying to, like the, I guess the people who are still in favor of it are trying to get like the sunk cost fallacy kind of going where they're like, well, we've already put 77 billion into it. We might as well continue the, the remaining 25 billion. Oh, wait, wait. So they're projected. Well, they're, I'm just yeah. trying to make sure I understand. So they're, they're, right now they've spent 64 billion. They're projected 77 billion, but they've, so, at, initially I thought they had already spent, and this was by mis, miscommunication, by misunderstanding. Yeah. My initial thought was they had spent. Seven billion, which was only the federal. I realize that now, and they still had seventy-seven billion to go. No, so they've spent sixty-four billion, and and actually, and this is not all tax-funded. They sold bonds for this as well. And yeah, they wanted to do a second bond. Pool. Yeah, and that and that's why a lot of these politicians are coming out against it, going, "You cannot do a second bond pool. Everything that you're promising is a lie." Because part of the bond stipulation is that the high-speed rail will be tax revenue neutral by the time it's finished. So, uh, and a lot of these guys are saying it's never going to be neutral. At $77 billion, it's not going to be neutral. And it, and it, it'll take hundreds of years to become neutral, if, if at all. So, uh, that's the whole thing that, like, is kind of upsetting. And, you know, that's a cautionary tale, I think, for Texas is that these high-speed rails just, they don't work. There's two in the world that are profitable. And mm-hmm. like, and I think besides those two, there's like three that are revenue neutral. And they're only revenue neutral when you cook the books. And, but, and that means don't include the cost of building it and the subsidies. Um, so it, it's like, it's kind of a weird thing. So if you go back, I think it was episode 20, we talked about, um, you know, how rail is a cool thing and that for some reason it's just like an American cultural thing. And, and like kind of going back to this, I just don't, I don't, 
I don't get why there's such this this fascination. And it must be like I'd love to do like a psychological analysis of why people like rail so much because it's so one dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know with with buses which r- serve roughly the same purpose. You the infrastructure the road infrastructure is already there. They they're they're flexible. They can move different places. They can they can you know slow down relatively quickly. They can go around traffic accidents. If somebody crashes on the rail, the rail's got to back all the way up until it can get to a bypass. You know, and the and the slowing down and backing up and all that sort of stuff is very slow. So I kind of like was trying to like think of what would maybe a, a semi free market solution be in the kind of the status world that we live in. And I'm going like if if the the high speed railroad in California can only go 150 100 miles per hour, and I've driven 100 miles per hour in my life, there's got to be a bus that can go 100 miles per hour. And so I did a little bit of scratching and, uh, or sniffing out and, you know, sleuthing or whatever you call it. And there's a lot of alternatives, but there is a, uh, high speed bus developed in the Netherlands that goes 150 miles per hour. It's called a super bus. <laughs> and, um, it, it, like, it basically would serve the same purpose as a high speed rail. And for a fraction of the price, you could just dedicate a highway lane to it. Possibly. Yeah. And, so I don't understand, like, if, if the demand is there, you could, you could scale with buses because, uh, one super bus can seat 40. So, um, if you buy, you know, two or three super buses rather than $77 billion worth of, uh, rail infrastructure stuff and then dedicate one lane to the super bus and see how it goes, that's not a huge sunk cost. Now, granted, you know, the government, a bus is not sexy and, you know, but if you need to get quickly from LA to San Francisco at 150 miles an hour, you're going to get there much more quickly than at 100 miles per hour going this weird, like roundabout way. Very circuitous route. Yeah. yeah. Um, then like some other things that kind of came up while I was like looking into this, just going like, what is it with, with the rail? Like, well, real quick. Yeah. You said two were profitable. Yes. Do you know which two those were? Uh, Tokyo. And, uh-huh. uh, one in China, I can't remember which one. There, there's one from like Tokyo to like Nanking or somewhere like that. I, I don't know. I don't know where. Oh, is that where? Okay. Then it's not there. Uh, there, there's, it's a, it's a relatively short route in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a formula for it that the amount of passengers that have to ride per day in order to make it profitable. Mm-hmm. Asia is the only place where it matches that. Uh, okay. now the very, the very first high speed rail, they actually talk about this in in the article. The very first high speed rail in France um, was profitable for the first couple of years, and then they shut down that line and made these other lines because there was deals with the municipalities, and they wanted the trains to stop in their city. <laughs> so as soon as you stop it being a direct route from places where people want to go and make it these kind of roundabout ways, um, that's when they start losing price. And because of the way the government works, is Every municipality wants a train, and every politician wants to tell his constituents that he brought the train there, and that the train's going to bring this much money, and you know all that sort of stuff. But if you if it's not going, you know, this is one of the reasons why like flying on an airplane is is beneficial, is because you are either going from point A to point B, or you're going from point A to point B to point C, instead of like the way that the rails are designed, where you're going from like point A to point B to point C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then finally to Z when you get to your where you want to go and you're making all the stops in between. Mm-hmm. And I understand why, but it's this is a this is a 19th century technology. Like it's not new. And you know, some of the other things, you know, speaking of airplanes that I was looking at was that there is a company that is um redeveloping uh supersonic passenger jet flight. 
Huh. And they've and uh, they actually they've they've got a couple of routes and they've got the investment funding and they've got a couple of prototypes and the prototypes work. They're going to go uh, like Mach two point five, I guess, and mm. um, which is roughly the same speed the Concorde went. The, uh-huh. the problem with the Concorde was that the tickets had to be about twenty thousand dollars per passenger um, to make it uh, profitable because it was so costly for the fuel, but. Uh-huh. This was also developed in the 60s and 70s when there wasn't the computer-aided design and testing that they have now. And so with a lot of the the supersonic computer-aided testing and things that they – now this is me reiterating an article. I don't know anything really about engineering. They've been able to like cut down significantly on drag. They've been able to – well, actually, jet engines have become more efficient, and actually they use for this uh, particular plane, because of the way that they've been able to design it, they're able to use a different type of jet engine that uh, is much, much more fuel efficient. It's about 40% more efficient than the Concorde, this, the plane that they've gotten. So the other issue with the Concorde was that it couldn't go... Um, there. You know, There's a law in the United States that you can't go supersonic over land. Mm-hmm. Um and unless you're the military, which they they do that all the time, and but uh, so basically the flight the Concorde made was from uh, just across the Atlantic, so it would go from like New York to London or New York or New York to Paris or New, you know different places in Europe, and mm-hmm. um, and then as soon as they got over land in Europe or if they got over land in the United States, it would have to slow down to under supersonic, and uh, there was also a lot of mechanical issues with it, like um, I, I don't exactly know why, but like the nose had to fold down on the uh, Concord, but uh, that was a, to allow the pilots to see. Well, now we have really good camera technology that will just allow the pilots to see with the camera. And mm-hmm. they've done some backups, some mechanical backups, just in case the camera fails. Um, and uh, so that's kind of how they're getting around a lot of this stuff. So their their solution is that they'll have volume instead. So they'll still be going those same routes that Concord went, but at uh, about fifteen hundred dollars a ticket. Um, which is which is expensive still, but for a business person who lives in New York who needs to get to London for an hour long meeting and wants to come home, that's a seven hour day as opposed to because it's you know it's going to be a three hour trip on the plane there, the hour long meeting and then the three hour back. I mean, you, obviously there's going to be travel time and that sort of stuff, but uh, or like you know getting to the plane and things like that. But uh, a fifteen hundred dollar ticket is reasonable for a lot of people. Like if I really need to get to London for some reason quickly, I could afford fifteen hundred if I needed to. Well, like so, I've got a couple of points here. Mm-hmm. So the first point is, is and this will be interesting to see. Let's assume governments don't get involved yeah. and don't stop this from working. Boeing designed their Dreamliner all on computer. They didn't yeah. do any drafting or anything like that, and that was plagued with development hell. Like okay. it just did not go well. And they had to change a lot of stuff because once they actually, you know, got real world stuff going and tried to build it, they realized like the computer's a fantasy. So yeah. we'll see how much of this is real. But so yeah, as you know, my wife and I honeymooned in Europe mm-hmm. and we used airline miles. So one of the things we tried to do was find the most efficient route tax wise. And the land in London was like two hundred and fifty dollars. Mm. Like in taxes. It was like some ridiculous amount of money, like per ticket, like, you know, flying from here to San Francisco is like $15 if you got the airline miles. Right. But like, so the taxes are super huge, but it's already like $1,500 to fly to Europe. 
right. per ticket. Yeah. So presuming something that's like a Concorde speed plane, that's all first class most likely. Well, this, the way that they build this in the article is that it is all the same class, uh-huh. but it's not first class. So the Concorde was all, was luxury for sure. Yeah. Like they, and, but this one is going to be pretty standard. And, they actually kind of to continue what they were talking about in the article. They said one of the failings of Concord was that they only went from basically New York to Europe. Mm. And they say that you need volume in order to make something profitable because it's, you know, economies of scale. So because, and one of the reasons that Concord didn't go from like Los Angeles to Sydney, for example, or like Los Angeles to Tokyo or somewhere like that was because it couldn't carry enough fuel. Yeah. This is 40% more efficient and has the same fuel capacity, and it can make it to uh, these Asian and uh, Pacific destinations. So there's they're, what they're talking about is doing you know, various ones out of San Francisco and Los Angeles and Seattle to Australia, Asia, you know, Hawaii, these places. And to be able to get from L.A. to Sydney in six hours is a huge difference than what is currently happening. Yeah, I mean that 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 alone makes that worthwhile to me. Yeah, like one of the things that's a huge problem for us is like my wife is super uncomfortable on airplanes. Yeah, is physically uncomfortable. She doesn't deal with the height issue you do, but like it's just the pressure difference and all that stuff. Right. So to be able to to me, it's worth fifteen hundred dollars. So you know, call it with my daughter forty five hundred dollars to get to Europe mm-hmm. and present well. I guess that's not a round trip, but and that might be the case. Yeah, that might be where my my calculation is off because these aren't round trip prices. Probably, probably, yeah, probably not. I don't, I don't recall from the article. I mean, like that's still like if you could get to New York, like think about a vacation. Yeah, you get to New York, you fly down, fly into London, you see whatever you know. Say you're going to for a night concert, mm-hmm. crash, and then take off mid morning in like three days, and you're not wiped out an entire day. Yeah, yeah, like that'd just be amazing. Well, I mean, they think about like, you know, our buddy Kassam, whose uh, mom lives in Australia, that uh-huh. when he, if he takes a week's vacation, he's spending two days out of those seven traveling. Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. Yeah, because he's, because it's, per yeah, it's like, what, 26 hours from Virginia yeah. to Sydney? Or I'm not sure where his mom lives, but somewhere in Australia. Um, I was a big place, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of, to sort of circle this back to the California high-speed rail is like these technologies are real and, and like the Concorde is not, um, it's not new technology. So th- it was like, it was a, you know, a master of, a, you know, feat of engineering and all that sort of stuff. And they, they did have Concorde flights up until I think 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and Bo- Boeing just kind of just because they, the, the capacity, even though they were slower, just at higher capacity better fuel economy, cheaper tickets, that sort of stuff. They just kind of, you know, wiped out Concord. Concord was just kind of like one of those bucket list things for wealthy people. Is they're like, well, I just want to fly a Concord at some point because they're cool. But, yeah. uh, I mean, the technology's here, like on the ground for shorter trips. I don't see why. I, I mean, I do see why because selling a train is sexy and, and you can kind of convince constituents to vote for you because of it. But from like a purely, you know, cost benefit analysis with no government subsidies, no government initiative running these things. I just don't see these trains being put in. Um, now I could be completely wrong. And in a free market situation, it could turn out that people value like the romantic, you know, the romanticized train or whatever over like a fast bus. But I just feel like, like if I could get like a dedicated lane between Dallas and Fort Worth, I could beat the Dallas Fort Worth train 
way by a ton mm. and shuttle people back and forth between Dallas and Fort Worth for way cheaper than the train. Although the train's actually really cheap. So, but it's subsidized. Yeah. So like yeah. in a free market situation, it may not be that cheap. Well, that's the thing is like, I think, I think free market. So like, I think one of the things that as you and I have talked about before, and it takes more thinking and you've done this thinking. So I, you know, this is more to the listener. Yeah. When you're talking about, cars you know because that's one of the things that like you know bus is great but a bus goes between a and b mm-hmm. and yes you can put c in between you know you can easily adjust it but like for a car you can go anywhere like yeah get halfway there and just turn around but one of the things that it, the free market thing may not provide is like a a car route between arizona and california yeah, that's true you know like there may not be a need if the free market was allowed to operate fully like you may not have a route where you could drive from texas to california because the road may not warrant enough travel because trains or cargo capacity planes or maybe passenger capacity would take up that space and it may yeah. be more efficient to you know uh, ship things no, well, that, that's true and that and you know i and i you're, you're right this is a good thing to think about because this is one of the things that's difficult and as i was record as i was kind of uh putting up our episodes that we had before several episodes ago we was when I came back from my first trip to Texas and I was talking about the light rail that goes downtown, which is, you know, runs behind our, our house. The, the problem with the light rail and the reason that not very many people use it is because there's a ton of government subsidized parking downtown. All of the roads go downtown and the train goes downtown and you can Uber downtown and you can scooter downtown and you can do all of these different things downtown. So right now, the flexibility of a car, which is heavily subsidized by the government through the creation of roads and parking, is much more efficient than going on a train that lacks large amounts of flexibility, but is also subsidized, but costs that makes it so that you don't have to pay for parking. So it is subsidized as well, but like you've got all, and also the buses go downtown. So you've got all of these competing forms of transportation, all of which are subsidized by the government. Mm-hmm. And all of those subsidies, like why no businessman in his right mind, unless he saw like some sort of convoluted way to make this work, would subsidize multiple forms of transportation to the same location. Because by people taking the train, you're taking away business from the road. And by taking the road, you're taking business away from the train. And by taking the bus, you're taking business away from Ford and, and you know, all these different people who sell cars or the gas companies or whoever. That, so I don't, I don't necessarily agree. So... There could be a situation where, so um, since you left, they've really gotten pretty far on the IKEA. And have you seen an IKEA in person? Yeah, we we got some stuff from IKEA. Um, there's there's one, they're, I think, in Plano. They're monstrous buildings. Oh yeah, they're huge. So imagine a situation where you want to give your customers the advantage of driving. Right. So, you know, you want them to be able to drive in and then go any direction they want once they leave you. Further, you don't want to burden them by the deliveries. And this is a 24-hour operation. Right. Like Walmart. So, and if you're using a lean operation where you're bringing in stuff maybe from regional warehouses, you would possibly train in. Now, right. you could offer a reduced price in on one of the freight trains, you know, like... In, yeah, so, like one car is passenger or something like that. Well, yeah. So, like, one of the things that apparently, like, my dad said is true, but I, 
I've never been able to. This is one of those things that if you and I had been better financially off before I got married, like my dad talked about, like you could get like a rent a berth on those cargo ships mm-hmm. and go somewhere. So like somehow get like a berth between here and Ireland on like a cargo ship. That'd be kind of fun. That would be. It would just kind of be a, like an adventure. Yeah. Especially if, like, you know, if we could both get one. Yeah. So then we're like, you know, like just some sort of weird adventure. Like, go, oh, we took a, you know, we flew back, but we took a boat there. It was just weird. We did it. Mm-hmm. So, but like, you could imagine a situation where for the convenience of your customers, you're loading trains. In. Right. And then those trains could theoretically bring in people, especially because like one of the things that I think, so you don't deal with it as much because one, you're very strong. Two, you're young. Yeah. Three, you've got a car. But remember when we were talking about moving to New Zealand? Right. Pretty much nobody had a big refrigerator. Yeah. Because just like you just go to the grocery store every day. So another situation where like trains do make sense for like bringing people in, especially if you're going to be selling a large amount of product, is being able to easily get that product back out. Right. Especially for people who can't afford a car. Because like, you know, let's say you need to buy a bed. Mm-hmm. Or like, no, this, this is one. So Ashley and I were almost bought a new fridge today. Yeah. We don't own a way to get a fridge to us. Yeah. So, but like if a train was a quarter, you know, like a quarter of a mile, like I, I can make it work. Right. Like, so I can see situations where that would be, that could work, but yeah, you're right. There is very few situations where you're going to have a business large enough. Yeah. But, well, and I mean, you can just kind of look at, you can look at some of the s- statistics and you can see that in order for at least passenger trains, cause actually, cause commercial freight is actually is profitable. And those lines, even though the government is involved, the lines are technically private. They just have to give, uh, they just have to route, uh, Amtrak through their, their lines. So, um, but like, it's, it's kind of a weird, like it's, it's a semi-private, like government convoluted situation with the trains. But anyways, uh, you can look at the data and you can see that for sheer people moving, you just have to have a massive amount of people and very few alternatives in order for it to work or very few viable alternatives. They do have roads in Japan. They do have roads in China, but, um, People go short distances mostly by bicycle, unless you're wealthy, um, or by walking. And they go long distances or, or medium distances by train where they are packed in like sardines. So in order to make it work, you just have to be moving large, large, large amounts of people. And when the government is giving you – well, they're, they're subsidizing you over and over to have a car, for one, because they keep interest rates so low that they want you to be buying things on credit. And so they basically are incentivizing you to buy a car. They incentivize you to own a car because there's roads everywhere. They incentivize you to own a car because there's parking everywhere. And then, it, you know, it's also just part of the culture, and that's fine. But by incentivizing you to have a car and then saying, well, why don't you, for the environment, and this is going to get to my next topic because I wanted to talk, I have some environment stuff that I wanted to talk about. Well, uh, let's go to that. Okay. But so at the same time, they're like, and this is one of the big arguments for the California high-speed rail. So they're like, oh, it's going to be so good for the environment. And this is how a lot of the people who supported it in 2008 have turned is they're going, no, it's not better for the environment. The amount of concrete that you have poured at this point is a larger producer of CO2, assuming that CO2 is a uh, problematic gas. Um, and that's kind of leads into that other point is that the government does a lot of these different things to try to be – environmentally friendly at least in the eyes of you know the world and uh or the eyes of their constituents i guess uh whatever it is that they can do to you know get some voters and get and somehow like appropriate more money under the guise that you know they're saving the world or whatever so 
Um, one thing I came across this week, and, and I don't know if I came across it in relation to the environmental impact of the California high-speed rail, but it was in uh, relation to something else where the guy was actually talking about um, – he gave a really kind of an interesting analogy. And he, this is um, – uh, let me find his name real quick. Uh, whoops. His name is – he's from Stanford. I'm trying to remember. Okay, his name is uh, Thomas Gale Moore. Um, and so he kind of brought up this interesting point, and, it, and he had an analogy with it, and he said that like uh, – he says, imagine that the environment is a car, and the sun is the engine, and you've got things like uh, – uh, I think it's cartogenic bacteria, the bacteria that, that give off CO2, is like the uh, frame – and then, like, animals are, like, the paint and the chairs and the windows and stuff like that. And he says, the man-made CO2 is a greenhouse gas, but it's like the nut on the back wheel of one of the tires. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he, this is an environmental scientist, is he, you know, and he did a, he, one of the articles that he wrote in this. And I, let me preface this, actually, before we get any sort of hate on this, because it's such a polarizing topic. Uh-huh. As like a libertarian anarchist, I do not care if global warming is real or not real. And I do not care if man-made global warming is real or not real. I care about market forces and I care about incentive structures. So uh, right now, cheap fuel it benefits millions and millions and millions of people. And what our governments around the world do is they try to prevent the poorest people in the world from having access to cheap electricity, namely from coal. Well, Coal is arguable, but from oil. Oil is is really the creme de la creme of cheap energy. And they try to go into Africa and they try to go into South America and all these places and be like, you don't need oil. You just need wind and solar, both of which are incredibly unreliable. And it is on them that they are ca- that they're denying these people through various actions, economic incentives and sanctions – um, to prevent people in very poor situations from getting inexpensive electricity, which would vastly, vastly improve their lives. You want to talk about wealth inequality, Bernie Sanders? Let's talk about energy access inequality when the government that Bernie Sanders supports and environmental uh, regulation that Bernie Sanders supports that then play out internationally hurts the people who are the most economically unequal to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's that's the thing that like people don't seem to understand. Yeah, like the living in the United States, you're in the top one percent of the world. Like, just you live here, you're in the yeah. top one percent, and then like we go around telling other countries, no, 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 don't trade, don't trade with the Iranians, right? Because we don't like their government. Yeah, because they don't like Israel. It's like Tanzania is like, who gives a shit? Yeah, exactly. And you know, and, and the thing is, like most of the country, you know what they care about is they care about the emphysema that their children get at like 14 years old because they've been stuck in a house where they're cooking with wood. Mm. Like, I mean, like there, there's an like I think it's like one in four African children die from some sort of lung infection because they cook inside because there's no electricity. It's really the best option for them to get like a high calorie uh, intake is from indoor cooking. The the women die very frequently from cooking indoors like and also like this is like it's a it's a race thing like the the liberals should be all over this it's a race thing it's a gender thing it's a child thing i I bet you a lot of those children are gay or trans so you know it could be one of those topics as well so like why are they not on board in in making sure that they have not not making sure that they have access but giving them the option to have access to cheap energy because it's it ultimately won't behoove them. Yeah, right. Well, what they need to do is they need to develop past it. You know, the United States, I do believe, you know, I find renewable energy sources and like, you know, 
not even carbon neutral because I don't really care that much about it, but like things that don't require a physical input that is like source on earth like i like the idea of solar type things but i also i also know that it's not a demand load technology um you have to either store the energy somehow or you have to have so much of it and make it very efficient to transfer energy from other places in order to do it but i also you can follow the, the money and a lot of the people who support wind and solar are natural gas companies because on the majority of those wind turbines the backup generator is natural gas and so wind is an unreliable source of energy. It's not always, the wind's not always blowing. And so if you have a high demand, but the wind is low, which when the wind's not blowing, it usually gets kind of stuffy and hot. So you would kind of turn up your AC, which would create a higher demand. And if the wind's not blowing, it's not generating the power. So what happens? The natural gas generator kicks on the natural gas and delivers you energy. And who makes money? The natural gas companies. So, and then if you also go in and look at like subsidies, Coal is actually heavily, heavily subsidized. So if you, if you, if, if people are really against coal, they could just call for the cut of subsidies to coal. They have. Uh, well, they should. And, and I, and I support that. But let's also cut the 59% subsidy to renewables mm-hmm. because they're not competing in an open market. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, then, then we can see if nuclear will work. Right. So the, the part of this article though that caught my eye is that in it, he mentions that, um, Northern England and Southern Scotland used to be like high producers of wine. Mm. And there are very few vineyards there now. Um, and the, there's also a lot of recordings of, um, of the varietals that they were growing there. And they were growing varietals that are grown primarily in Southern France now. And mm-hmm. so, uh, this is called like the medieval warm period. So, uh, right after the dark ages, when people were coming out of, uh, the, you know, when they were coming out of the dark ages, uh, there was a warming period that lasted four or 500 years. And this is a lot of people attribute the dark ages ending to this period because the food production was extremely high. So this actually, this guy, what's that? Oregon take one up. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Thomas Gale Moore, one of the things, his article that I was talking about, it's called warmer is richer. And he attributes the, the warming period from 1000 to 1300 to basically pulling people out of poverty because food became plentiful. And so people wouldn't have to spend all of their time trying to get calories. They could spend their time doing other things. And, you know, that snowballed into event, you know, first the agricultural revolution, then eventually the industrial revolution. And, mm-hmm. and so he kind of like, his point is that if you look back in time, every time there has been a, a, a society that is wealthy and has made progress, it's been during a historic warm period. And I didn't know this, but apparently uh, there is a type of um, climatology that looks at two main factors that drive the the weather, sunspots and cosmic rays. Um, and I had no idea that cosmic rays cost, co- did anything to the weather, but apparently uh, the main reason that clouds form is cosmic rays. Huh. And I had, I had no idea. I thought it was just like it evaporates and then... Um, those particles yeah and that you know that creates a cloud but apparently like something that happens with the cosmic rays are what allows it to turn from like just plain old water vapor into clouds and that transport it. and I, I remember there's an episode of star trek voyager where they talk about this one planet that they go to and they're like they have none of these particles in their atmosphere and then like young ensign kim is like that means no clouds can form and so I was wondering, huh, I wonder if that's what they were talking about in that episode of Star Trek. But, uh, but this guy was saying that you can look at like these, there's, and there's a lot of trace evidence that shows when cosmic rays are hitting the earth. 
And he says, like, there's a lot of different things that you can look at, but he says, they've been recording sunspots for almost a thousand, uh, 1500 years. So, uh, like, you know, monks and, and, uh, Muslims were looking at, looking at the sun, I guess, through, uh, a camera obscura or whatever, trying to see the sunspots and they would record sunspots. And he says, you can actually look back at the data and you can see, uh, warming periods and cooling periods do roughly correspond with the sunspots. And in the places where they don't correspond with the sunspots, uh, you can take core samples and you can see the effects of cosmic rays on soil um, mm-hmm. and rock and ice. And he says, and you can see that in those places where they don't correspond, there was either an elevated or a decreased level of um, cosmic rays, which would mean that there was either a decreased or increased level of cloud formation and clouds reflect sun rays. So when there's clouds, it will make the environment cooler. Um, so it was very, very interesting article. I've never actually heard these arguments. And, um, and then for, this was not this guy, but then like just kind of going down the rabbit hole of reading the internet. Um, this is one of the guys that they have cited him as being one of the, uh, 97% of scientists or whatever that agree. <laughs> and, and he's repeatedly said, he's like, I don't agree with this. They consulted me. And then when they put out their papers, they cited my name on it, and I've told them repeatedly to take my name off, and they won't do it. <laughs> and and he and he goes through and he says that this is like this. There's an organization, uh, like the International Climate Change or whatever. It's a, it's a government organization, and he says it's supposedly an organization of scientists. And and there's a lot of scientists who say this, and they and they're like, look, if you say anything against them, you're kind of ostracized. And most of these are guys who have been kicked out of you know the, the academic community. Um, but, uh, they, they're, he says a lot of these people have degrees, but they're not scientists. They're bureaucrats. Um, so he says like, they'll go, they'll get their degree. They'll get a PhD in climatology or they'll get a master's in climatology or whatever. And then they'll go join this board, but they've never actually done any research or anything. They're just bureaucrats. They, they just get a job in, in, in doing bureaucracy. And he says, you know, uh, and they kind of trace it back to Thatcher is that Thatcher was having a big fight with the coal unions. And (laughs) so, and when she saw somebody came out with a report that said that CO2 might be a problem. And so she was like, ah, this is something maybe we can use to break the coal union. And so she went to this, this organization and said, I need to get you to get me, I'll give you funding. I need any research that says that, that CO2 is going to affect the global temperatures or it's going to be harmful in any way. And she got those papers and that was right around the same time that the, that the UN was forming these climate research things, but they were forming these climate research things in response to the 70s scare of global cooling. Yeah. That's what my dad said when he was growing up. Yeah. And it's, and so like, I'm not saying that it's, it's true or false. What I'm saying is that for those people who, uh, say like anytime anybody dissents, it's like, oh, well, you must be in the pocket of big oil. There is big green and people are, are in the pocket of big green. And oh, yeah. the, ma- you know, the majority of these people are reactionaries. They're leftists. They're trained to do this. But the libertarian solution to this is neither pro, like it's not science denial or whatever. It, it doesn't really, the science is kind of irrelevant. What it is, is it's a property rights concern. If you uh-huh. really wanted to make a difference, if, if right now we're in a cultural situation and we talked about this last episode that you have normative things. Right now we're in a cult- cultural situation where the normative position is that carbon is pollution. Or carbon dioxide in particular is pollution. So if the if that is the normative position, whether it's a it, whether it's true or not is irrelevant, but it is garbage and if it goes onto your property, then 
it is actionable because the majority of people and the culture right now consider that a problem. It's not like the flashlight. Now, if we believe that photons cause like horns to grow out of your forehead or something like that, and that was a bad thing, like I, I horn out of my forehead is kind of cool. But uh, <laughs> if we, if like culturally we consider that a bad thing, then the whole argument that that uh, Rothbard makes that shining a, a flashlight on your house is a de minimis violation. Well, that goes out the door if we all, if, if as a culture, we all believe that this is a bad thing and harmful. Well, and that's, this is one of the things that I have. And this is, um, this may be a topic for another conver- another conversation mm-hmm. where we can devote more time to it. Okay. So running a little late for both of us. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I have, so I'm much more closer aligned with the, um, homesteading principle. Uh huh in virgin land but so like let's say that i have a dark room you shining photons on my house Mm -hmm. may disrupt that now i've homesteaded this to have a specific light characteristic Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what the normative is right it's subjective value and that's this is where well see i think the difference though is that you did something for a specific purpose right so like it would be like if somebody went down and chopped down like three trees from your forest that you had homesteaded for hiking, and they were like, well, it's de minimis. You have a bajillion trees. You would say, well, no, that's not de minimis because I specifically homesteaded this land so people could go look at trees. Oh, no, and I, I agree. And I yeah. think this is where – and this is one of the things that – so – and this may be a continuation of my knowing is the advantage mm-hmm. thing. So knowing that it's it's like – um. I bought my house because so here's a here's a real example. So as you know, mm-hmm. the bridge over the Hampton Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel has been awful your entire life that you've lived here. Yep. So they're talking about widening it finally. I personally hate the amount of road noise that is occurring currently at my house because I live so close to it. And I don't live like proximity wise, I'm close but not that close. Mm-hmm. But they're talking about putting it four lanes in each direction with like HOV lanes. So they're talking about doubling it from what it is right now. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about doubling it from the bridge, like all the way across the bridge to the 264 interchange, which is past where I live. Right. So they are objectively going to change my neighborhood. They're yeah. going to take part of my neighborhood to do this. So, and you, uh, and you bought that land, that neighborhood or that house specifically because you liked the neighborhood. Correct. Yeah. So like, Presuming I bought the house with the knowledge that people didn't often walk through the neighborhood with flashlights. Right. And somebody starts doing it every night. Right. And Rothbard would say, you know, there's a certain amount of photons. And this is one of the things that being shitty, yeah. <laughs> you know, like now all of a sudden somebody's walking through with a flashlight every night and they're walking through with a flashlight because they're afraid. Right. And they're trying to get over their fear of the dark. So they're walking through with a flashlight and they're eventually going to stop. Because they're going to stop being afraid of the dark and they're going to mm-hmm. grow up and be, you know, a better person. You and I would applaud that person. But now I'm pissed off because this person's shining a flashlight everywhere because mm-hmm. they're afraid. So, like, there's a normative, you know, flashlight shouldn't bother you that much. But, like, if this, any of it's like, when does it become not normative? This is the 17th time the person's walked by in an yeah. hour. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. That's, I think, is kind of the point of normative is it's not really that normal in your situation for somebody to walk by 17 times with a flashlight. So it, it becomes outside of that realm. Yeah. And that, but that's the, but I, I guess that. it depends, you know, one time is one time, but this also kind of plays back into like the, I wouldn't even say it's like libertarian escalation theory, but the whole concept of escalation is that, um, 
in a in I guess in a libertarian free society, you could probably solve that situation without escalating it to the point where you would need courts, security, that sort of thing. Well, you, then, you could probably solve it. Well, this is the thing that I think I hate homeowners associations. Yeah, because. Well, you, you hate you hate the homeowners associations that exist now. Well, and that's what I was yeah. going to say. And I didn't have a good, I, I didn't get to that fast enough. Mm-hmm. Let's say because you know sometimes it takes me a little bit <laughs> longer to get. Right. Well, also you know we've been drinking, so <laughs> oh, that that too. And it, it's for some reason very warm in this room. Oh, okay, it's so weird. Uh, we'll deal with it later. Uh, off off air, where it's not complaining about homes. Right. Right. <laughs> But yeah, like I hate the idea of a homeowners association that arbitrarily sets rules that are enforced. But that's the thing is like the beauty of a libertarian society is it's contractual. You've Mm -hmm. set up with to use this public sidewalk, you can't use a flashlight because Mm -hmm. there are these blue, you know, overhead lights that do X, Y, and Z and you'll disturb the environment, whatever. So like, there's all these things that can be done right. to like mitigate this idea of a risk. And if that was something that was going to be a problem for you, you would live in a home that had like those super big contracts. Right. Whereas like you and I might be like, well, we want we want some of this, but we don't want all of it. Yeah. So we live in a different home. Sure. And that's the, the beauty of like the idea of a private society um, is when it's contractually based, it, it's very clear what is is and is not expected. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to rely upon normative standards because you can derive a pure contract position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you have to live in a subjective, non-contract based society, having normative standards can be very helpful. Right. When you're able to combine the two, and depending on the need of resolving a situation, yeah, a normative position and a contractually based position with you know certain assumptions in those being able to be demonstrated can be very useful. Because one of the things that I think would be like would happen in a contract based society is you and I would sign a contract over the ownership of this program. Right. And one of the things that could happen is if we had some sort of disagreement is you could subpoena other contracts I've signed that I have told you about in some way. You know, could right. do certain fishing expeditions. Yeah. That show I have signed a contract that have certain normative clauses spelled out. Mm. That in the area of Hampton Roads, the normative clause for, you know, nudity on camera is mm-hmm. this. And I've signed this contract within a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I knew this was a thing, and you could be perceived to understand that I had that. You know, right. you could have that. And so you're using the normative perspective, but using the contract theory where, you know, this is something I actually did. Yeah. Now, of course, you and I would basically only sign contracts that were private. Right. Well, you know, and I think this kind of, uh, this reminds me of something that Tom and Bob were talking about on Contra Krugman, um, either this week or last week, uh, where they, they were, they had a question from one of the, one of the guests about like transitioning into anarchy and they both kind of made the, uh, do you remember this episode or have you listened? It was this week. Oh, it was this week. Okay. So they make September 9th. Okay. Yeah. Um, So they make this, they make this argument, both of them, which I was actually a little bit surprised to see them make this argument because it was a little bit less radical than I kind of expected from them. mm -hmm. But they, but kind of, both Tom and Bob sort of uh resigned themselves. They were like, look, if, if, you know, the figurative button to press to make the world anarchist or whatever, I would do that if I believe that the culture was there, that people would be, would respect anarchy. And they're kind of saying that like, yeah, in these situations that we have now where 
things descend into quote unquote anarchy where the government's gone, there's a normative, I don't think they use the word normative, but there is an expectation that another government's going to come. So Actually, I think Bob did use normative. Oh, maybe he did. Okay. So, and he was basically saying that like the reason that, you know, a private security force doesn't come in is because they just assume that they're going to go out of business when a new government wins and establishes themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the same situation that you and I are talking about is it's sort of hard to imagine the society we're going to live in when the society that we currently live in makes the assumption that the state is going to do all of these different things. Yeah. And that's where, yeah. And I think you and I make that assumption sometimes too, and it takes time to kind of think through it. I've got two good points on that in a second. Okay. So first, well, I've got two points, one of them on that. The other is this is episode 155. What would happen if one country became free and the rest had states Okay. Um, from Contra Krugan? So for the listeners, if they want to go back and listen yeah. to it. It's well, very let me write episode. that. I'm going to write it in my notes. 155. Yeah, yeah it's a very good episode. Um, I was surprised to hear some of the basis of what they were discussing. I didn't think it was a cop-out. Yeah. Like, the, you know, some people would say it was. But I did not that I didn't think they were being pure because they definitely were. Yeah. But I think it gave a good descriptive causation or causation, let's say, um, on like the Soviet Union. It, it, it gave a, a lot more of um, insight into the concept that I've heard before or, mm-hmm. you know, like you had to get a special pass to go read Rothbard or Mises, you know, in a special library in the Kremlin, you know, yeah. nonsense like that where – like, you know, these weren't even concepts that were available. So like right. the idea that you would suddenly adopt. And, and so I, you don't use iTunes. So right. you don't have as like recently iTunes, you dumped a lot of their content onto iTunes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Mises podcasts are now available okay. to me. They've always been free and available on their site. But um, so there's a Marx versus Marxism mm-hmm. uh lecture series from 1988 um if you haven't had a chance to listen to it i think you would really get a lot from it hoppa's in it oh, okay um, so it's called marx good. marx versus marxism i'm gonna put it in the show notes yeah something uh let me get the real name for sure real quick um, okay shoot um so well real sorry. quick while you're looking for no, that Mar- marx and marxism sorry marx sorry. and marxism okay so but so they um yeah, they, they do a good job of defining pure capitalism okay versus mercantilism and these other things yeah so that, that really kind of helped me along with this Bob and Tom episode kind of get the basis of like, you know, in Somalia, they didn't immediately become non-despots because yeah. the government wasn't there. Like they didn't have a foundation for even the concept of how to treat one another. Yeah. Like when they had no accumulated capital, really, they had, I mean, there was just a lot of problems with, with well, Somalia, it, but it, it did become better. And that's, yeah, that and, was, I think, the key point. Yeah, but the, this is my point is, like, you don't even have to have accumulated capital. Yeah. You don't even have, like, a fundamental basis for not seeking revenge. Like, even with right. accumulated capital, like, not having accumulated capital can work out very well. And no one, yeah. you know, you're trying to seek revenge. Well, you know, it's just killing the guy and you're not going to get any profit from it by stealing his stuff. It doesn't always make sense. Well, you know, this this is kind of like one of this may be self serving because I'm a Christian, but like I think one of the one of the most major, uh, I guess, I mean, the concept existed before, but one of the most major like universal embodiments of the concept of forgiveness is one of the most major contributions of Christianity is that. Mm-hmm. You do not, and granted, you know, there's been a lot, you know, the, 
the Montagues and Capulets were probably, you know, they're not real, but they were probably Christian in fiction or whatever. And I'm sure there was a lot of families similar to that, but this idea where um, forgiveness is kind of a fundamental thing that you, sometimes you just need to bestow forgiveness because it's not beneficial to the person you're forgiving. It's beneficial to you. Yeah. And it, it teaches you. Yeah. Like about letting go of what you're holding, whether they do or not. Mm-hmm. So, but it's here's hard. the, so here's the, here's my controversial other point. Okay. End user agreements are a sign of a pure contract-based society forming. Hmm. That might be true. That, that would actually be very interesting, except for <laughs> none of us read it. <laughs> but, well, and, and, uh, but that's, that's the amazing part. Yeah. Is it's very frustrating that you can't use a product that you've already purchased without agreeing to these conditions or you will stop receiving certain things. Right. I have a problem with updates. I have a problem with even being able to use the product. Right. But because I think implicitly by purchasing the product, I agree to the existing software on it. Right. I shouldn't have to sign an end user agreement. I purchased it. Right. But that's one of the things that is so insidious about a government voiding an end user agreement mm-hmm. or making a company violate it in a way that they can't then inform you. Like Apple right. being forced to rat on people, which Apple like has kind of hinted to the government that if they keep it up, they won't. Right. They'll just tell people, they're like, no, we have more money than you. Come after us. Like, we have enough cash to do this. Like, see what happens. Yeah. Well, one more, let me cycle back one more thing, and then this is, we'll use this to wrap up because we're... We're at an hour 18, but once I remove pauses and stuff, we'll probably be closer to an hour, and I want to keep our shows to a a good length. Um, But uh, one thing to kind of cycle back on. So Jeffrey Tucker, who... You know, early on in me being an anarchist, um, was pretty influential on me. He has, he has a really great lecture, uh, lecture. He has a really good lecture on YouTube called, uh, Capitalism is Love or something along those lines, which I'll put in the show notes too. But, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll cut this pause out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the things that he talked about in this interview that he did on, um, Rubin report is he says one of the reasons that he is not crazy about the term libertarian is, and he's a libertarian anarchist, but he is kind of on the left a little bit. Um, yeah, he's very much on the left in a lot of regards. Like he, he kind of has this sort of like, you got to celebrate diversity and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think that leaves a huge amount of room for conservatives, but, uh, not, not diversity in the sense that like, I, I don't I don't buy the left libertarian thing that you have to celebrate differences. Here's the thing. You just I have think, to kind of be like, okay, fine, whatever. I, I think Jeffrey Tucker is fine if you don't celebrate it. Yeah. Well I think he probably okay. is. Like he but I the a lot of like, you know, the Horowitzes of the world and that sort of stuff who are yeah. like, You're a Nazi if you don't celebrate somebody's gay wedding. It's like, well no, it's just it's not part of my religion. Uh well, this is so this is where I think one of the things that we have failed to do is promote Jeffrey Tucker more frequently. <laughs> yeah. Um because every time I encounter any of his stuff, I, I love him. I, I think he's a he's a he's a wonderful wonderful uh, anarchist theorist. Yeah, he's he's a wonderful human being. And, yeah, and I think that's the thing that Jeffrey Tucker represents. And I think this is something that I've wanted to talk to you about, but I haven't found okay. a way necessarily to talk to you about it. You are becoming a little bit more like Rick. Oh yeah. How much things bother you? Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> more like I used to be. 
Well, you know what? The thing is, is this interview with Jeffrey Tucker kind of reminded me how much I like him. Mm-hmm. And and a, a lot of the reason I didn't like him was one time when Bob, uh, not Bob, when Tom Woods mentioned that he had become very leftist. And then mm-hmm. I read the paper that he wrote, and the paper was uh, against brutalist architecture, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of. But anyways, that's sort of aside. And so like when I saw it, I was like, you know what? I, I As much as I love Tom and as much as I love Bob, I, I do let them influence me a lot more than I think is okay because there are things with them that I disagree with. You know, Bob is a uh, evangelical and Tom is a Catholic and I'm a Quaker. Like there's a lot of religious stuff that we don't agree on. And, mm. uh, and Tom will say some stuff once in a while that I don't agree with. Bob is usually really strictly economics. And I, I wouldn't say I'm versed enough in economics to be able to disagree with him. But uh, so like, Watching this interview on on the Ruben Report kind of reminded me how much I like Jeffrey Tucker. Yeah, and this is so. This is kind of my point is as of late in our private conversations, mm-hmm. and, and we don't live near each other. Yeah, we don't see each other five days a week at work for eight hours or more a day. Yeah, so our conversations are, and I, I am more restricted in my ability to communicate to you. Yeah. During the day. So a lot of the times, the things you're complaining about, you're complaining. You know, yeah. that's just, I'm not there for the highs. I'm not there for the lows. I just get the lows sometimes. Yeah, sure. But there is, seems to have been a more vitriol to the leftist position. And oh, yeah. I don't disagree. Well, I think, I think because I see them so much more as a cult of like a cultural imposition into my life. I, I needed to stop reading Reddit as much as I do. That's basically it. Well, I, here's the thing. Like, and we've talked about this before. You're the type of guy who pokes the bruise mm-hmm. constantly. <laughs> like, yeah. The bruise was the bruise was a quarter. Now it's a fifty cent piece because you right. poked it too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing is like I don't really read Jeffrey Tucker very often. Actually, I don't think I've ever read anything he's written. But Gosh, I read him. I read him every week. He posts on Fee all the time. Yeah, but listening to him speak. Yeah. And, and I don't mean this in a blasphemous way. He is the most Jesus-like libertarian that I've heard. Yeah, he's great. He's uplifting. He he wants you to be better. Mm-hmm. Now, and this is one of those things where, like, you know, I don't have a problem with the message of Christ of peace, love, and brothership. Right. I do have a problem with the idea of saying that believe in me and you'll have eternal life. I just don't believe that. Right. And so I'm sure there are things that Jeffrey Tucker may believe that I don't believe. Yeah. Well, you know, he was the editor of the Catholic Music Review. I yeah. Think. So, like, he's he's a pretty, hard, from what I understand, he's a pretty hardcore Catholic. Well, and that's that's fine, but he is very turn the other cheek. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you could be a white supremacist. You could be a Black Panther killing people in the street. Jeffrey Tucker would try to seemingly, to me, try to find the good in someone. Yeah. Well, and that's, and I think that's one of the things he's the best at is describing how much capitalism is a act of, of, basically act of love. Like, and that's, and that's the, that's the, you know, the, the lecture he gave where like capitalism as an act of love. Um, I'll look up what the lecture they actually called and I'll put it in the show notes. But, uh, he, you know, he, he is, he's a really great person and, and kind of like, Trying to like wrap this back up is he uh-huh. was, he was on the Rubin report and I, I thought this is one of the best things. He's written recently a, um, um, a book about, uh, the threat from the right. Uh-huh. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that, you know, as libertarians, we do kind of forget that there is a pretty major threat from the right. It's not a manifest threat right now because like I would consider Trump 
a threat from the left. Um, and the reason that is is because the alt-right is reactionary to the left, but in the same way that the left is reactionary to them. So they both have sort of the same the same sort of leftist tendencies. So I don't really see any sort of threat from the right. I don't really see any conservatives in any sort of powerful position, like true conservatives, that are trying to, other than maybe Jeff Sessions, who has sort of an adversarial relationship with Trump. Um, but I don't see any sort of like right-wing threat. But one of the things I like that Jeffrey Tucker kind of reminded everybody is that, yeah, they do have a, a have a, uh, there is a threat from the right. And both the, the modern left and the modern right have their same source in the past. And, but kind of that's sort of aside, but one of the things that he talked about on there, and, and I think this sort of ties into the normative question is, uh, he says one of the reasons he is not crazy about the term libertarian. He, he, he does like to still use the term liberal. And mm. the reason he says, he says it's very, very, very important for people to be able to look back and see that they have a history and to see like, what did my people in the past do right? What did my people in the past do wrong? And mm-hmm. the liberal tradition goes back hundreds of years. Yeah. And, uh, and he says that the libertarian position really only goes back about 50 years to, you know, Rothbard and, uh, you know, maybe Henry Hazlitt, uh, it's a stretch to say that Mises was libertarian because he considered himself a liberal. There's actually a really good book about Mises. I'll put it in the show notes, uh, called, uh, Ludwig von Mises, the last night of liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mises, the last. Yeah. So I'm going to jump in here real quick. And this is one of the things I've had a problem with the term libertarian. Yeah. And why I personally prefer anarchist or I personally prefer abolitionist. Um, Many people, and Murray Rothbard himself specifically, admit that they co-opted the term. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't mean, and so like we, we, you specifically, and I don't, I'm not, this is not saying that you have this problem, um, but like you specifically have a huge problem when the left takes words mm-hmm. that mean something and make them mean something else right. that are completely nonsensical to you. Yeah. I think that's just how language changes, but you know, I, I'm a little different in that regard because there are other words that other situations where that would happen. It would drive me insane. Um, but we took a term from the left, not from liberals, from the left. Yeah. That no, this is our term now because you corrupted our term. Well, yeah, it's reactionary. Yeah, it's it's like, a very right wing thing to do. It's and well, and I think that might be one of the reasons why libertarianism is so right wing. I, I don't think it's a right wing thing to do. Well, it's a human thing. I say I think that I think the right wing tendency is to be reactionary. Um, like the, the left is reactionary. They're progressive. It's is that they have their own. They're not reacting to any sort of threat from the right. The right reacts from change from the left. No, no, and no, this no. is like this is like a breakdown in, on the psychological level. You can you can. There's a lot of indicators that allows you to kind of basically see what people are going to be: conservative or liberal, and or conservative or progressive. Liberal liberal is a different thing. Liberal is kind of it's its huh. own thing. That's what we are basically. But yeah. there's a lot of indicators that you can see and like trait openness and things like that. You know, the big five psychological things. But uh one of the things that the left does is that they're they're very creative and they want to change and push things to a direction that they invent. But that but that's... the the right is different. The the right wing perspective is reaction to the change and wanting to preserve what exists. So like if you were a true conservative you'd want what hap- what is right now the status quo that never to change. There's not, it's not a going back. It's a now. 
let's reframe the state. Yeah. This is something that you and I have talked about before, mm-hmm. the avant-garde movement. Mm-hmm. The avant-garde movement was a reactionary movement to the existence, and somebody would come out covered in dog feces. Right. And then the person would react and say, I'm not far enough out there. So they would crap all over themselves and come out. So maybe it's like, maybe so, it's reaction to themselves, not reaction to correct. the opposite or whatever. It, it, it's both. Yeah. So it's a reaction to somebody saying, and so somebody saying that, oh, gay marriage is fine. The left immediately reacts and comes out and says, well, then you have to accept me marrying a tree and a dog and a wine bottle. Yeah. Because you've reacted to them. They react to you. They don't self, they don't mutate amongst themselves. They mutate against themselves. Yeah. Whereas the conservatives, (laughs) the conservatives react to everything. Yeah. Well, yeah, anything that changes, you know. Yeah, they tend to react in the same direction. Right. And they generally tend to react along the same lines, whereas the left goes bananas. Right. But it's kind of like, it's a physics problem. It's like when you look at a nuclear chain reaction. Sometimes you fire that neutron in there and it does a logical breakdown. Other times it it doesn't get absorbed at the right spot and does something weird. And that's just the layout. Mm -hmm. So. The left is a reaction to itself yep. that reacts hyper-violently to the right. right. The right is a reaction to the left only. Yeah. They don't really react amongst themselves unless they get poisoned by the left because you get people who come out and go, well, you know, the 1880s weren't that bad. And they're like, well, they were lynching blacks in the street. Yeah. Like, yeah, unfortunately, that that's true. But the antebellum South has a lot of values that weren't bad. They have some terrible values, right? but they have a lot of values that weren't bad. Like Jefferson, like Thomas Jefferson was a proto-liberal. I won't call him a full liberal, but he was a proto-liberal. He had some amazing ideas. Right. And he did some weird shit. Yeah. Like enslave people and have sex with them. Right. Well, he did. And, you know, although we don't really know the circumstances of that, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that, you know, given the situation, let's say that it's, uh, what what is it that liberals say is uh, privilege plus power? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, That's, uh, to me, like, and so that I think this is where we'll kind of wrap it up. Is yeah. to me, everything is a reaction to something else. There are very few people who are completely on their own wavelength. Mm-hmm. The people who are generally on their own wavelength are absolutely insane. Okay. Like, that, that sounds like you and me. <laughs> no, I, I'm always reacting. I'm always reacting to Reddit. And, yeah. uh, I, what was it that I was reacting to the other? Oh, Black the, the, the Black Panther, which like, I was like, Oh my God. Like the, the, the thing is, is I really like the movie, but the, Dude, but like, don't, don't, don't tell me any more of it. Okay. So folks, tastinganarchy.com, tastinganarchy on Twitter, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Three different ways you can reach out to us. Um, Jacob checks most of those. So if you have something you want to specifically say to me, one of the things that we we're going to try to work in in the future is some sort of monthly review or something like that. That's going to be additional content. Right. We're not saying we're creating a Patreon, but kind of get that idea. Right. So I am challenging Jacob as he has challenged me. You have two months to write a review for black Panther because I think your perspective on the review is a long-term comic book enjoyer, right? A reactionary person to the left and a person who does not come from black culture will be an interesting view of, the movie yeah. well you know and i may do a uh instead of like a review that is written maybe i will do a, re- a recorded review i'll write some notes down and just kind of talk about it because the thing is I-, I like the movie i like all of the marvel movies but i'll i'll kind of like 
look back at what I was saying to you because there are a lot of things where I'm like, it's so obvious to me that this is, to use a word from the left, problematic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I, I will do that. That's good. That's a good one. That'll be kind of like a bonus thing or whatever is I'll have like an audio recorded review of Black Panther, which I'm way, way, way behind on having watched, but it's now on Netflix. And uh, the thing is like... You know, I, I actually really like movies and I should start doing audio reviews of movies more frequently because like Trolls, I thought was like a super libertarian movie. And like for a long time, I was like, you got to show your kids this. And then like, I don't even watch Mickey Mouse Playhouse very often, but I watched a couple episodes uh, with uh, my nephew and I was like, holy shit, this is like hardcore libertarian. Well, so one of the things that I will say is audio reviews are good, um, but some of them have to be written. Okay. Because we both need to challenge ourselves writing-wise. Well, if you if you take a look at the uh, the website, I do have two new written items on there that that uh, the listeners can listen to. Um, and actually, it's, they're going to be yeah, can read. They're they're kind of old at this point. Um, actually, I guess I I have only posted one so far. It's uh. It's a review of a of a book that I thought was fantastic. It's called Libertarians on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Rose Wilder Lane, and the Making of the Little House books. For those of you who don't know, recently the uh, there's a library award that was called the uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder Children's Book Award or something along those lines. Um, yeah, it's a book prize. The book prize was taken – Laura Ingalls Wilder was taken off of it because the powers that be decided that uh, the way that she depicted Native Americans in the books was quote unquote problematic and that, uh, those books are, need to be relegated to the past and ignored. But those books have been incredibly influential. And after reading Libertarians on the Prairie, I realized how influential they've been on my perspective in life and, uh, and kind of my path to libertarianism. I thought that my path to libertarianism started with like the Bob Barr campaign. Um, and then like I'll read something and I'll be like, oh, well, it actually started back here. And now I'm going like, actually, it started back when my mom read me Little Little House on the Prairie when I was like four. It started when your parents had you. Probably, yeah. Cause I, and I've shared this anecdote before. Like I had like a very libertarian war reaction when I was very young, when Clinton was bon bombing uh, Bosnia. And I said something to my dad. Like, I remember it was on TV, and I was like, man, they shouldn't do that. Or, you know, I, I probably didn't say, man, they shouldn't do that. I was like, dad, why would they, why would they be blowing those people and up and – he was like, Jake, don't, do you want them to do ethnic cleansing? And I was like, I don't, I don't know what they should do about it, but I know that there's probably kids in those houses and they didn't do anything. Yeah. So I don't think, I think your path of libertarianism started with Christianity. Well, that, that's, that's very possible. Yeah. That could be. And I think that's like you absorb, and I think it comes probably from your grandparents, mm -hmm. personally. Well, I that could be. Any of them are specifically libertarians. I think they are closer to yeah. classic. Well, but, but I think they had they had a healthy distrust of the government. My grandma was very anti FDR. My grandpa was a Holocaust survivor. Well, Holocaust refugee, not really a Holocaust survivor. But um, you know, I think they both had a, a healthy distrust of the government. Well, and that's what I mean is I think like they they have this classical blend of liberal conservative. Yeah, yeah. Like what what liberals mutated into right. in reaction to certain governments. Yeah. Well, you know, none of them, and neither one of them had really any, any like deep seated prejudice. And maybe we'll save this for another time, but like I, my grandma used to tell me the story that when she was really young, there was a gay bar in Seattle. Like this is back in like the, maybe the late forties, early fifties. <laughs> and she said that they would go to the gay bar, not because they didn't like gays, but because it was like a fascination to them. Uh -huh. And 
Like, and so she said, like, we, you know, she's like, you know, growing up, like, we never really had a problem with gays. We knew they existed. We knew that they lived a different lifestyle. And, uh, and it was pretty clear you could identify people who were gay, but it was also just sort of accepted that they would not make it public. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, so, and this is, you gotta stop, but yeah, we gotta stop. So, so we'll, we'll, maybe we'll say that for another, another time. This is something for you just to think about. Sure. That is that is why the out and proud thing exists. Yeah. Is there were there was a time when innocent people like your grandmother mm-hmm. were simply trying to view another culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's probably so, exactly like people when they take a trip to Africa and they go watch people dance and stuff like that. Yeah. And, so it's these these were people trying to view another culture, but these are people saying, What the f are you staring at? Like leave me alone because yeah. they're not people who are so poor that you're paying them to dance. Right. Exactly. Like you're paying them like the fact that you're showing up with a thousand dollars is like gonna feed their village for six months. These are right. people who are like, I make more money than you. Go right. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, so, I get it. Yeah. The next generation of gays have this reaction of like, no, like I'm here, I'm queer, leave me alone. Sure. Like, deal with it. Like and so but so Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's uh, like we keep saying we're gonna end it, we never do, but uh let's go ahead. Tastinganarchy yep. at gmail dot com, tastinganarchy on Twitter for Jacob's uh fight with Diane uh, Feinstein, which he is yeah. winning because she won't respond. <laughs> yeah. The Tom Woods, Tom Woods level of res- uh, whatever he, the Michael Malice fight thing he had. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've been thinking about like you know keep an eye out on the on the podcast feed because I've been thinking about doing some like uh, kind of like sort of updates on Wednesdays um, mm-hmm. and uh, just sort of to like post little little ten fifteen minute updates on things that I've seen this week or that I want to complain about or praise. Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to like air more toward the praise because I do get sucked into the negative void quite a bit as Mason pointed out. Um, and he's correct. I do. And, uh, and there's a lot of really good stuff going on right now. And that good stuff needs to be, you know, show lighted. Is is that the correct term? Show lighted? Um, I don't, I don't know, but it works for me. Right. That works. Okay. So, uh, for, you know, for Tasting Anarchy, this is Jacob. This is Mason. Stay free. Yes, sir. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drink it wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfie at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, soda, you're drink wine. Wine, soda, you're drink wine.